0: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Busy week on the ATP Tour last week and a busy show coming up for you. I'm going to hit on a lot of things. Main topic is going to be the end of a drought. Felix Oje-Aliassin is a champion on the ATP Tour. Ninth time is the charm. He defeated Stefano Tsitsipas in the final in Rotterdam. That was the ATP 500 this week on Indoor Hard. Also, Buenos Aires, another title for Kasper Rude. I'm going to hit on that. Big week for uh, Riley Opelka. He wins the inaugural Dallas Open. There's uh, also some news when it comes to coaching. Stefano Tsitsipas brought on Tomas Enquist this week. Yannick Sinner has parted ways with Ricardo Piatti, his childhood coach from the age of 13. I'm going to get into that, what my thoughts are there. Yuri Lahechka, young Czech player. 20 years old, qualified, first ever ATP main draw, ATP sanctioned. Uh, He made his real debut at the Australian Open a couple weeks back. Huge week for him. Whoa. Uh, I'm going to talk about what I saw with that. But to start, it's got to be Delpo. It's Delpo's week. It was Delpo's week. I know I'm pretty late on this news. And uh, it happened at the beginning of last week. And I could have made a video, but I was busy. One of the great tragedies... Of the last decade plus of tennis is that we didn't get Del Potro healthy. There's no way around it. He would have been in there. He would have been a contender. We were robbed of countless epic matches. Because Del Potro was so rarely at his best. Because his body wouldn't cooperate. And the history books would look a little bit different. We would, again have um, a lot of uh, a richer memory bank in the last decade plus if he were around. So uh, a great tragedy, but also the impact that he had when he was on the court, when he was playing, when he was healthy, was remarkable. That impact hits home for me because the first ever match that I saw in person, I've shared this on Twitter, I've shared this on three, was the 2009 U.S. Open final between him and Federer. And I didn't watch that much tennis on TV at that point in time. That match was inspiring to me. That match made me a bigger fan. That match helped me fall in love with the sport. And the emotion, first of all, that was on display on Del Potro's side, seeing how much it meant to him, he was in ruins after losing the third set. Won the fourth, won the fifth, and it was a beautiful reaction to winning that that major. And so special that he shared the moment with a lot of Argentinians in the crowd as well. And that was cool. But the forehands, I still remember. I mean, I still remember those running forehands with, you know, off of, you know, Federer would go inside in or hit a backhand down the line. And Del Potro would be on the run, eight feet behind the baseline, and would hit an absolute flat bomb, over 100 miles per hour, clean winner, cross court, on the dead run, flat as a pancake, boom. And the sound reverberated through Arthur Ashe, and it was like... It was electrifying. That shot, that forehand was electrifying. So w- bearing witness to those things as a as a young fan, that was really special to me. I'm always indebted to Del Potro for helping me fall in love with this game. He touched a lot of people that way, I'm sure. I'm not alone. So uh, gracias, Delpo. Gracias. Yuri Lehechka. So at the Aussie, he qualified and played Grigor Dimitrov in the first round, took a set off of him. Rotterdam, he qualifies again. And this is a guy who was outside of the top 200 at the start of 2021. Completely meteoric, rise up the ranks, Uh, two challenger titles last year, a couple of other finals, lower level ITF titles as well. He's been killing it on the lower levels. Now he arrives on the big stage. And he's 20 years old. It's not, it's not rare to see someone make a slow transition from the challengers to the pros. This was not that. Lahetchka qualifies. He beats Mute in qualifying. He beats Denis Shapovalov in his first career match. Look, Denis, Denis has this weird habit after a good result or after a major to suffer a really bad loss. It was actually another Czech, Vit Kopriva. After Wimbledon, Shapovalv lost to first round. I don't know what's up with that. That aside, he beats Dennis. And that's an awesome story in itself. Next round, he has Botik von de Zanschulp. Right outside the top 50. He's probably not going to follow up the biggest win of his life with a win over someone who's, first of all, extremely motivated in their home country, BBdz, Lehechka beats him. Now he plays Lorenzo Bussetti. Big moment for both. Tense. Lots of nerves. And Lahechka, end of the third set, shows a ton of toughness, great great physicality, a lot of heart, and nerve management, and wins 7-5 in the third. Makes the semifinal, loses to Tsitsipas in three. So, unbelievable run. What stood out to me about his game... There's definitely a purity to his ball striking. He he hits really clean. The power comes pretty easily to him. He trades with a lot of pace, very comfortably, very consistently. The evenness between his forehand and his backhand definitely stand out. You're really not you're not finding a lot of safety by going to his backhand. And he can build and he can apply pressure with his backhand as well as his forehand. So you, you think of him as a very even player. He's got good shot tolerance as well, and he's got a lot of heart. You know, I, I didn't see a lot of uh a lot of wep- repertoire. He doesn't have any massive holes. He he had volleys, he showed off volleys. He his athleticism wasn't wasn't eye-popping, it was but it was good pretty good. It was fine. His serve, technically, I didn't love it. It had some effectiveness, I would say. But really, the the ball striking, very pure. Very, very good off both wings. So um, I'm going to keep it at that. I know surface level, but those were my initial initial scout on Yuri Lahetchka. I want to talk about coaching. You know, beginning of the week, Stefano Tsitsipas brought in a new coach, and it's uh, Thomas Enquist, the former World number 4 Australian Open finalist, uh, the Swede. Look, I I don't have—I'm never going to have a lot, you know, much of an opinion on the coaches themselves because there's not enough access for anyone to form those kinds of opinions. But as far as Steph bringing in someone new, it's time. It was time. It's time for some new technical advice. There are too many parts of his game that have been lackluster in the technical department for too long. And he needs someone to take a hard look at how he defends his backhand, how he returns his backhand, how he slices his backhand. I think he could use someone to look at the serve. And see, is there a way that we can get five to ten percent more out of that? It's time for some people to look at some things technically and for some new voices to come in in that department. It's time for someone with tour experience in his camp. Little things like scheduling, managing the emotions week in, week out, travel, tour stuff. Apostolos, he he wasn't a tour professional. I think that's a good thing, to have someone who can give you some new ideas and some newer, new perspectives in that area. It's definitely time for less distraction. I just don't think it's helped that there's been somewhat of a circus around pass on a regular basis for the last six months. That that can't help. Distractions aren't good. They're generally bad. And it's time for that to end. and you know, I, I do wonder if there's someone else in there who is technically in charge. Is that going to reel in a lot of the antics that we see from Apostolos? I think it could. Lastly, just to have something beyond that father-son dynamic. And from what I've observed from their interactions, it's to me, they have a bit of a father-son thing going on. Where Steph can be a little bit dismissive, he can be a little bit disrespectful. Not that I've never seen that from pairings, you know, professional pairings where it's not family. But I feel like that comes from a certain level of comfort. And I don't blame Stephanos and I'm not attacking his character. I really don't want it to be interpreted like that at all. Um, the same thing happens with me and my parents is I'm going to say things to my parents that I would not be comfortable saying to my boss. I know that differs maybe culture to culture, but that's what I've observed from Stephanos and Apostolos. And I think it might be good for a professional to come in to bring a new sense of responsibility and professionalism to Tsitsipas' camp and to change that dynamic, to change that coach player dynamic, because I don't think when it's father-son, that changes the way things work. Really happy to see Stefanos bring in someone else new. That's it. Yannick Sinner has reportedly done the same thing, only it's a little bit different because Apostolos is still going to be in the mix. Uh, I do want to make that clear. In the case of Yannick Sinner, he's parting ways with Ricardo Piatti, who. Took Yannick under his wing at 13 years of age. Built his game. Is undoubtedly the architect of his game. There have been some uh, candidates floating around for Yannick. Magnus Norman being one. Boris Becker being another. I don't have much to say about those guys. You know, they both seem like solid choices. Magnus Norman especially. Very experienced coach on the tour who's done awesome things with his players. But as far as breaking up with Piatti goes... And I'll admit that I'm usually pro-player when it comes to these kinds of decisions. I generally give them the benefit of the doubt. Sure, Piotti is the architect of his game, but the house is built now. It's time for that house to be maintained. It's time for it to be incrementally improved. And reportedly, the complaints that Yannick has is that Ricardo just... Isn't the traveling coach he needs that is going to give him that 24-7 attention? That Maybe that match-in and match-out scouting, the, the time to travel and work on the training court together. Piatti's got an academy, and sometimes that dynamic can be a strained one between a head coach and their kind of star pupil and the academy. And it seems like that's what's at play here. But the one thing that I'll say is by no means should Yannick have any sort of loyalty because you got to, first of all, the past is the past. You need to evaluate what is best for the future. And the, the process of building Yannick Sinner's game is completely different from the process of touring and maintaining... And improving you know building the house is just not the same thing as what it takes to maintain and improve that set of skills so i give yannick the full benefit of the doubt there and i want to throw that out there um another clay court 250 for rude champion in buenos aires great final with uh with diego schwartzman really good stuff there rude with a six and one start to the year i thought he looked good at the atp cup and i was so disappointed to see him injure his ankle right before the Australian Open. Because at this point, when it comes to it's it's time for him to make a run in a major. That's kind of what's missing here. He's proven himself, for the most part, in every other area. Made the semifinal at the ATP Finals. Has made many, many Masters 1000 semifinals. Certainly has the 250 titles. Doesn't have a I don't think he has a title above the 250 level, so that's definitely a, an accomplishment that that he needs to bag at some point. Um, but he's won twenty-two of his last twenty-three clay court matches. Four titles. The post Wimbledon hat trick. It was like Bestad, Gestad and Keats Now he's one point Osiris. Only clay court loss in his last twenty three was Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, round three. At the French. Head got in the way, nerves got in the way there. He was the better player. He shouldn't have lost that match. That was all nerve management. He got too nervous and he couldn't play his game. That's what happened in that match, period. So you're kind of in a weird spot with Rude. What are your takeaways here? Because he keeps winning these 250s and it's kind of like, all right, we get it. We get it. You're not going to lose on Clay. To someone who's not in the top 10 and not Diego Schwartzman. We get it. He's just not gonna lose. So where do we go from here? How are we making that next step? Well, we know what that looks like from a result standpoint. Go deeper in bigger tournaments, make a run in a major, go past round three in a major. Go from, you know, he's made semifinals in Monte Carlo and Madrid. And um, and yeah, I, I don't know. Did he did he make it in um any others on the clay? I think he might have. Uh, win those big matches in the semifinals against the elite players. Win one of those titles. There's plenty more to kind of accomplish for Casper Root. But what does that process look like? And don't take this. You know, I'm not going to criticize him here, but. At some point, you have to question why he played Buenos Aires last week. Why not Rotterdam? Why wasn't he in Rotterdam? There are other things at play that maybe I don't and can't talk about, such as appearance fees, but let's ignore that. Throw that aside. Talk about tennis. Look at the top 15. Uh, Paz played Rotterdam. Rublev played Rotterdam, Felix played Rotterdam, Herkoc played Rotterdam, Chapeau played Rotterdam, Nori played Rotterdam. The only guy in the top fifteen who played Buenos Aires is Schwartzman. Tournaments in Argentina, you you understand that. At a certain point, challenge yourself, play the 500, more points, more prize money, better players work on the stuff that you need to work on, challenge yourself, develop. Might have been better to play Rotterdam. Now, again, it he's still at a point in his career, wildly impressive what he's doing. He's elite on clay. You can't take anything away from him. You can't. But if the pattern continues where he's winning the clay 250s, not taking the next step, winning the clay two fifties, not taking the next step. At a certain point, you got to look at the decisions he's making. Maybe it's time to use those extra weeks to play the tournaments where he's going to be more uncomfortable. That's a possibility. Lorenzo Musetti played Rotterdam and he was asked why last week. And he said, because I wanted to work on my worst surface indoors a slow indoor hard court. It, you know, Musetti wasn't completely out of his element, but I was impressed with that. That impressed me. So I'm not criticizing Rude. I'm really not. But if he played Rotterdam, I'd be praising him. I would like that better. I would like it better. Indian Wells, Miami, they feel important to him. Those are slower hard courts. The conditions should suit him. We see players who do well on clay; they do well in Indian Wells. So I, I'm very intrigued to see what he does there. Uh, lastly, before we get to the Rotterdam final, big week for uh, Opelka, Brooksby in another final as well. Great to see Brooksby back out there. What a show he is. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Whether you love him or you hate him, I'm a big fan um, about you know the fact that he, he really does bring something different to the table. The way he competes, it's, uh, it's a college tennis kind of attitude that I, I appreciate. For Opelka, I'm not going to go long on him. I just want to see him go a month without a bad loss. It's kind of a similar situation to Rude. I know I know he's capable of this. I think he's top 20 material. And he's back in the top 20 now. He can go farther. He can reach higher. It's a week-to-week focus thing with him. I just want to see him go a month without a bad loss. The fact that he wins the title here. It's, uh, it's reassuring, but I feel like I don't really learn anything about Riley Opelka because you, you knew he could do this. You knew, that you knew he had this in him. What I'm not sure about is can you go through the calendar without the dramatic ups and downs? That's kind of what I want to see from Riley. Just want to throw that out there. But uh, Dallas Open also, by the way, huge success, massive success. So much better than the New York Open. The New York Open made no sense during winter time in a market that gets to go to the U.S. Open anyway. If you walk around the U.S. Open, half the people are from Long Island. So Long Island didn't need another tournament in the winter indoors. It was just depressing and no good and ridiculous. So um, I was happy to see full crowds in Dallas on the campus of SMU and uh, a really awesome event. With that, we get to... The Rotterdam finals. So, Felix comes in zero and eight in finals. TT Pass comes in zero and seven in ATP five hundred finals. That was the big uh, nugget, big stat that everyone was was throwing around. But for Felix, it's a lot more important, in my opinion. And uh, I've been saying all year, ever since ATP Cup, he's different. He's just not the same guy. He's better in not just one area, but a multitude of areas. And you started to see, the first thing you started to see, before the game got better technically, you started to see his confidence just get a little bit better. And you started to see him win big matches on stadium courts at majors. And he's gone now three majors in a row. Quarterfinals are better. Take notice, folks. That's the first thing. Start of this year, the technical improvements were evident. Better transition game. Better shot tolerance, better forehand consistency, easier targets on that side, more on that later. Um, Better court positioning. But then also, you know, the ATP Cup was big. You knew it was going to be big in the moment, and it was big. Because, first of all, the Zverev win I thought was massive. He needed a win to put Canada through to the semifinal stage. Zverev was playing for absolutely nothing, and Felix wins that match. That's when I was like, whoa, I did not expect that. And that's when I knew that something was up with Felix here. Clinches, the ATP final for Canada. Uh, players all the time, they say, when, when, you have, when you're wearing your flags and you have teammates, that's a different kind of pressure. That can be more pressure than any individual tournament. Felix beats up in-form RBA there, and you knew that was going to help him the next time he was in a final. Well, it did. Because he played a fantastic match here. And it wasn't competitive. He blew out Stefano Sitsipas in this Rotterdam final. But again, I caution everyone. It wasn't just the final. It wasn't just this week. Every single time Stefano Sitsipas has taken the court this year. Sorry. Every single time Felix Oje Aliassim has taken the court this year. He's been a different dude. He's been a better dude. He's been... A top 10 to top five, really a borderline top five, because he is top 10 right now. And I'm trying not to be hyperbolic as as hard as I can. But I said, even when he lost to Daniil Medvedev in five, I looked at the level of that match. I said, after the match, that's a top five level. That looked like a match between two top five players. If Felix can keep this up, it's only five weeks into the season. So you got to pump the brakes. You got to keep watching for the consistency. Felix keeps playing like this. He is going to be knocking on the door of the tier one players. I thought the key to the match was the offensive returning by Felix. The lack thereof from Stefanos. If you look statistically at the damage that was done off of return in... Both the return and the next shot. So we often talk about serve plus one. What a key it is. If you hit offensive returns, you can also get those almost return plus one. I'd rather call it maybe return and one because, you know, or return one, two. Whatever it is. If you look at those stats, if you isolate those opportunities, you see that Felix, eight forced errors, two winners... On return, on his first two shots, return plus one. Eight forced errors, two winners. Tsitsipas on that same subset, two forced errors, zero winners. Wasn't doing any damage, which is actually normal. It's kind of normal. What's abnormal is what Felix did. To win 10 points off of pas's serve... And let's, let me try to put this in perspective here uh, by pulling up the stats. I mean, how many, how many serve points in total real quick? 55. So to win nearly a fifth of return points off the prowess of the return itself is very, very impressive a lot of these were second serve return points off of Pass's second serve. Uh, Some of them weren't, though. Some of them were first serve returns. I do have some examples here. 30-15. Pass hits this second serve, kind of the body, maybe backhand body. But Felix is going to be able to run around this and hit a hard inside-out forehand forces an error in the second set pass hits this second serve cross court felix hits a clean winner on this return love 30 this was an important point set up triple break point once again felix broke in this opening return game which he did in both the first and the second sets and i'm showing you examples here um, and and there were more in these games actually. Uh, let's go to this love two game. Different return, backhand inside in, forces another error. Same thing, striking, striking. How many points played out that way? Again, mostly second serve, uh, second serve points, and Titi Pass only won thirty three percent of his second serve points, and he hit a ton of second serves. Because he did not serve a good percentage, so recipe for disaster. That's what created so many breaks of serve. Titi Pas won seventy four percent of his first serve points. You can hold serve like that. That's enough to hold serve. So the reason Titi Pas kept getting his serve broken, not enough first serves in, not protecting his second serve. What about Titi Pas's second serve return? Well, Felix. Almost always to the backhand, almost every time, he's just not as solid, not as stable on the back, on that backhand return, and he's not going to be offensive off of his backhand second serve return. He just it's not. He doesn't find the center of the strings as much. I find he often doesn't hit that quite as clean. He does not hit with the same depth. He hits the bigger and more central targets often. So he just doesn't generate that same offense and he's playing neutral rallies off of his second serve return points. Where Felix was literally able to was able to play offensive tennis off of his second serve return points, which I thought just made a huge difference in this match and statistically I think it swung the match. Um The cheap point battle, which is something that I've highlighted with the TT pas Medvedev head to head on, on hardcourt. Again, it's another match where where Steph loses this. FAA, 47% of his first serves unreturned. Uh that's not a hor- that's not a horrific number. It's not horrible. But Rotterdam plays pretty slow. So you do want to get more of those back. But more importantly, I'm just focused on who's getting the better of the dynamic. Tsitsipas, 32% first serves unreturned. Way down. Really low. That's a great job by Felix. I think Felix's return is underrated. I think it was awesome in this match. Again, he's extremely athletic out of his split step. His backswings are very short. He hits the ball very clean off that return, and I think it's one of his strengths. But uh, just... This isn't happening to Titi Pass against anyone. It's happening to him against the elite serve returners, and it's happening to him on hard court. But it's another match where this happens, and he's playing at a disadvantage when this happens every single time. So if you combine that offensive returning by Felix and cheap point battle won by Felix... That's where you get the uh, the short term short term advantage, where Titi Pass one points uh, zero through 4, 39 to twenty eight, and it was really on Titi Pass's serve. On Titi Pass's serve, Steph only won twenty three to seventeen. Steph needs to dominate that category on serve zero through four shots. That can't be that close, or or he's in trouble. So that was a a big red flag. Cheap points, offensive returning by Felix. Those are the two uh, formulas for that. Um, Another thing was uh, backhands. How many returns got to the backhand? Felix was able to get more returns to the Stefano Tsitsipas backhand. These things all work hand in hand. But I also thought once the rally started, Felix did a better job on his backhand Getting out of jail, getting out of the backhand trap, getting out of that corner with stronger cross-court backhands, better backhand neutralization, whether he's going cross-court, uh, hitting that with precision, getting it out of the middle of the court and getting it away from Titi Pass's forehand. I think Felix was able to do that. Don't think Titi Pass was able to do that. Especially when he went to the slice cross court, it almost never found the Felix backhand. Uh, FAA's footwork, his runaround speed is, is too good. And I didn't think Poss was at all able to keep FAA really honest and take his backhand down the line in this match, which is very important in my opinion. And I just thought there was a lot of backhand defense insufficient, middle of the court. Uh, and Poss, once he was on defense, wasn't able to really get out of that position. Another interesting thing when it comes to the rally length stats is Felix didn't lose a single five through eight rally on his serve, which tells you that once he got that kind of advantage in the rally that comes from the serve, that advantage didn't really diminish. Now, credit to Felix, it's it's just if you look at this subset of, of uh, points, it's the stats really bode well for him obviously he didn't make a single unforced error he hit four winners on his um on his fifth shot and forced three um errors on his fifth shot um which is which is really really good cuz he only made cuz he didn't make a single unforced error fifth shot think serve return one more shot so it's your third shot you serve you hit one shot; it's your third shot. Um, and FAA was was really amazing on that fifth shot, which is uh, kind of a Rafa signature because Nadal's forehand is so good at, at keeping control of the rally. You could see Tsitsipas was uh, FAA was keeping control of the rally and never relinquishing it. But it also shows you that Tsitsipas was not not getting back in points from defensive positions, which he should be able to do. He's he's got good defense. He's an amazing athlete. His scrambling's really good. The reality is there was no defense in this match from from Steph because uh, FAA was pounding the backhand side and the neutralization efforts on Tsitsipas' backhand just was not good enough at all. And FAA dominated on serve as a result of this. Absolutely dominated. Uh, Let's face it. The points that Steph won on Felix's serve... ...were forced errors from Felix. Very few exceptions to that rule. Very few. I mean, he just could not neutralize at all. From the very start, from the return, from the backhand return to the backhand defense. And Felix's forehand completely controlled every rally. Um, but Tsitsipas hit more backhands than forehands in this match... That's incredibly difficult for an opponent to do. And rarely is Steph going to win a match like that, um, in my opinion. It shows who's controlling the point. The serve-return dynamic is a factor here. Who starts the point and how. How many returns are getting to the backhand. But I think the backhand cross-court defense and the backhand trading is a factor here. Um, And I think in the future... One of the things Titi Pas needs to make sure to do in this matchup is uh, hit that backhand down the line to open up, um, open up Felix's backhand a little bit better. You, you got to f- try to figure out a way to find more forehands. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is the forehand reliability. Because traditionally in this matchup, I think that that would be a big edge for Tsitsipas, or it should be a big edge for Pass. Steph just has a forehand that sprays a little bit less. He controls it better. It's the ultimate precision shot where FAA can make some head-scratching mistakes on that side. Well, at the end of the match, forehand on forced errors were in favor of TT Pass made three. Felix made seven. So the question is, how could that dynamic matter more in the future? How could that dynamic become one, be, uh, become something that helps Pass win this match? Well, f- for one, I think more balls in play, more returns in play, more defense in play. The more you drag rallies out, the more that unforced error rate. Is going to show itself. So I think making more returns, achieving longer rallies to test the consistency a little bit more could have been things that that worked in C T Pass's favor. But at the end of the day, Felix was Felix's offense was too much. And again, there, you know, it just there was no neutralization from CT Pass. Another thing, though, on the forehand is FAA has just been playing better in this area as of late. The targets are better. The, I think the RPMs are up. The net clearance is up, in my opinion. Uh, I'd love to see some Hawkeye to, to confirm that. But this is classic Uncle Tony stuff. Racket acceleration, net clearance, high RPM to big targets, he, the weight of shot from Felix and the acceleration naturally that he is able to achieve on that forehand enables him to hit with a lot of topspin to big targets and still be damaging. Maybe, you know, when it's time to finish, when it's time to step inside the court and take time away, you flatten out, you hit a little bit closer to the line. But I think on the rally ball forehands, Felix has been so much better playing so much safer and he's sustaining aggression on his forehand without making unforced errors which is something he was not very good at. It used to be, you know, just make him play some extra balls. You'll get the unforced errors. And it was not like that in this case. And it just goes to show you, I mean, they each made eight unforced errors in total. So it was a clean match from both um, when, when you look at things. But um, the tidiness that Felix had on his serve, controlling with his forehand, was the key in this match to not let pass back into it. Because all it had to, you know, all it might may have taken was one loose game from Felix to to give pass a spark, and we know how a match can change. But Steph was never in this match. Again, Felix broke first game of each set. I thought it was a sluggish performance by pass, and I'm not going to break down. I'm not going to break down his performance in any sort of macro way. Um, I've talked about the shortcomings, but the shortcomings in this match aren't new. Not getting enough um, losing the cheap point battle, something we've seen against elite serve and returners a lot. Not being able to defend the backhand well enough, something we've seen a lot. But none of these things are new. The one thing that I I will just comment is, is the feet just didn't look quite as sharp as they usually do. And he said after the match that the legs were sluggish. Yeah, something was missing from an explosiveness standpoint in his legs, and I'm not sure why. But I think overall a positive result for Tsitsipas. He's never played too well on these courts. He came in with either a 500 record or a losing record. I forget which. I know he made the semifinal last year and he lost to to Rublev. Uh, Tsitsipas is just... He's never looked too comfortable in Rotterdam, so I think making a final, all the changes that have occurred, the new strings, the elbow surgery, the new coach... I think there's a lot of reason for optimism about the trajectory of Stefano Sitzipas's career at the moment, and I think he's setting up for a couple of really good months. But it pales in comparison to the optimism that's necessary for Felix oje Aliassim, who now has the monkey off of his back, who now has all of these new technical things working in his favor. Who knows? The floodgates could be open, and if he continues this level, he's a easily a top five contender at Wimbledon and easily a top five contender in the top 25% of the quickest surfaces on tour, which, by the way, may now include the U.S. Open. There are the, the areas where you can poke holes in FAA's game is growing fewer and fewer. And when I first saw him and I saw... Someone with an unbelievable combination of athleticism and power. Weaponry on the serve and the forehand. Quickness, lightning quickness in the feet. He's he's now just refined the auxiliary stuff. The tactics, the nerve management, some details on the backhand. He's still returning great. I think he always has. This man is the player of the start of 2022 uh, as far as improvement is concerned. I know he started at 11, you know, he was 11 in the world, so I know that's hard to say, but he appears to be the guy who's making a jump here. All right, that is all. Um, Monday Match Analysis is available on all podcast platforms. I like to quickly uh, or occasionally throw out a reminder um, of that, Uh, but hope you enjoyed this one. Don't forget to subscribe and I will see you next time.